Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Growing up, my family, we didn't do a whole lot of traveling. Uh, Both of my parents worked full-time jobs, and my dad's job was a little more rigid in its scheduling, so we didn't have the opportunity to go on a lot of big trips. And so we never did things like Disney or or Six Flags together. Uh, Arnold's Park in Okaboji, Iowa was about as uh, (laughs) daring a theme park as we could get to, and it was close. Uh, but, But growing up, we did do a lot of camps. And I, for one, got excited about camp. I was often so excited, in fact, that I would pack my bags three weeks early before camp just so I could be ready. (laughs) Anybody else remember doing that? Anybody want to admit it to the rest of us that we did that? (laughs) Art, I knew you would, right? (laughs) But you you pack your bag early, right? And then what do you spend the next three weeks doing? Unpacking your bag, wearing the clothes, washing them, packing the bag. And you do that over and over again, right? Uh, repeating that cycle all over. I, I looked forward with eager anticipation to camp, and I hated waiting for camp to arrive. The season of Advent is a season of waiting and anticipating. Our English word Advent actually comes from, to us from a Latin word which means coming. And during Advent, we wait with eager anticipation for Christ's second coming his second advent. And as we do, we we also look back in celebration on his first coming, his first advent at Christmas. And our sermon text for this morning is from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived and ministered more than 700 years before Jesus' birth. And the text that we're going to read this morning is a messianic text. That means uh, it was pointing forward to the promised Savior who was to come. And very specifically in this text, Isaiah, uh, looking through the, the lens of prophecy, Isaiah foresaw the Messiah's second coming, his second advent as a reigning king. Uh, one might say that Isaiah was waiting for the return of the king. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11, We'll be reading the first 10 verses. Why don't you stand with me as we read God's word? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, reading again in Jesus' name. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, 
the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Excuse me. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word and for this glimpse into eternity that you gave Isaiah. And Lord, as we eagerly anticipate Christ's second coming, we look back at his first coming with joy and with celebration, thanking you for the redemption that he brought. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This is a beautiful... Oh, you may be seated. (laughs) I was going to make you stand for the whole thing, but some of you didn't want to. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture, isn't it? It's one that's filled with hope and with confidence in the Lord and in his righteous King. And it's a passage that turns our hearts uh, with eager longing towards eternity. So who exactly is this righteous king that is to come? As you read through to the description of what will occur during his reign and in his kingdom, you begin to realize that this sort of peace that's described here in Isaiah 11 cannot come from the peaceful transition of power from one king to the next. The kings of Israel and Judah could not enact the sort of peace and righteousness described in these verses. There is something utterly special and the king who is coming and what he will do. And this king, Isaiah prophesied, would come from David's line. In verse 1, Isaiah describes him this way. The king would come as a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from Jesse's roots. If you recall your Old Testament history, you'll most likely remember that Jesse was the father of who? Yeah, King David, right? Jesse had eight sons. And after Saul, Israel's first king, had turned his back on the Lord, uh, the Lord sent Samuel to anoint one of Jesse's sons to become king. And when Samuel arrived at Jesse's house to anoint the next king, Samuel looked at the oldest and the the strongest of Jesse's sons and figured, ah, it's got to be one of these guys. They look like a king. But the Lord had other ideas, right? He told Samuel that now famous phrase, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then the Lord told Samuel to anoint Jesse's youngest son, David, the one who was out tending the sheep, to be the next king over Israel. And as they say, the rest is history. So why is this righteous king described as coming from the stump of Jesse? What is that a reference to? I believe that Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit, foresaw the fall and the destruction of Israel and Judah well before those events occurred. Isaiah lived and ministered during the decline of Israel, the nation of Israel, and he lived to see that nation be conquered and carried off into exile by Assyria. 
And Isaiah also witnessed Judah coming within inches of following Israel's doom and being carried off into exile as well. They were miraculously saved from destruction. A really neat story that you can read in Isaiah 36 and 37 uh, later today. Uh, But I believe that Isaiah rightly knew that it was only a matter of time before Judah followed in the footsteps of Israel and was defeated as well. And he was right. In 586 BC, the nation of Judah was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the Jews who lived in, in Jerusalem and Judah were carried off into exile. And then you have stories like Daniel and things like that that center around that exile. The proud tree of Judah would be chopped down, Isaiah says, and only a stump of its former glory would remain. But it wasn't all doom and gloom for Isaiah. Uh, He also foresaw some very good things, some good news. Through the Spirit, Isaiah saw a shoot that would come from that dead stump. There would be life from death. This past spring, I took down a bush that I had planted in in the corner of my house. Um, It was actually two bushes, or it was one bush and this weedy bush-like thing that had, uh, it was very aggressive and it it took over and I could never exactly tell what was going on there. They were so intertwined and intermixed that I, I could not cut out the weed bush thing without destroying the bush that was supposed to be there. And so I had to take down both of them. And digging deep into the soil, I got at the roots as best as I could, and I got it all, or so I thought, right? <laughs> and over the summer, all throughout the summer, right, I had shoots and I had branches popping up all over <laughs> that area from that root that was still there. There was still life, shoots and branches coming up from that dead bush that I thought was dead. <laughs> And I know many of you have probably had similar experiences in your own yards and gardens as well. And that's what Isaiah is picturing happening here with, with Judah, with David's royal line of kings. Even though they would be dead, cut off, cut, taken into exile, left as a stump, even then, yet life would emerge. And there is a sense in which part of this prophecy of Isaiah has already started to be fulfilled, isn't there? When the angel Gabriel came to Mary to announce that she was going to be the mother of Jesus, the mother of the Messiah, Gabriel told her that her son would be great and would be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Jesus came, born of the house and the line of David fulfilling all those prophecies that that said the Messiah would come from David's righteous branch. Jesus is that righteous king that Isaiah foresaw in chapter 11. And there's also a sense in which part of Isaiah's prophecy here, and and also uh, Gabriel's announcement to Mary as well, uh, haven't yet been fully complete. They have not yet been fully complete. When Christ came, he did not establish an earthly kingdom, did he? He did not bring the peace that Isaiah described here in chapter 11. He did not set up that enduring, lasting kingdom. And that's why many people became upset with Jesus as he taught, as he ministered. That's probably even why Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. 
Judas had probably been waiting for Jesus to overthrow Rome so that Israel and Judah could have a nation again and usher in the peace that's described here in chapter 11. And so when Jesus failed to deliver on that promise and as he continued to talk of his death at the hands of the high priest, Judas most likely got frustrated and that's why he betrayed Jesus. But at his first advent, Jesus was not intent on setting up an earthly kingdom. His mission was a spiritual one. It was a rescue mission. His death on the cross wasn't the result of the anger of Judas. It was the culmination of all history. Because it was on the cross that Jesus bled and died, bearing your sins on his body, bearing it or becoming a curse for us. He died in our place and on our behalf to bring us to God. What a wonderful, righteous Savior King that we have. What a wonderful Savior. But here we are in between the two advents, in between the two comings of Christ. We look back on his first coming when he redeemed us and gave his life for ours. And we look forward, we look ahead to his second advent, which should be in about right five minutes, uh, when he's going to usher in his kingdom, finally defeating once and for all sin and death and the devil. And I believe that's what the rest of the prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 11 is speaking of and foretelling. The new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, eternal life. So let's turn our attention to the return of the king and discover what this king is like and what his reign in this kingdom will consist of. Isaiah tells us in verses 2 and 3 that the king will rule in the power of the Spirit and in the fear of the Lord. Look at these verses again, verses 2 and then the first part of verse 3. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord." These verses describe what qualities the king will have as he reigns. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those are pretty good qualities in any leader, aren't they? Uh, you would want anyone in authority, whether they be the president or the governor, the senator or congressman, your, your boss or your supervisor, right? You would want them to have those qualities, and Jesus had all of these qualities fully equipped through the power of the Spirit. And by the way, in, in these verses, did, did you catch it? The Trinity is described. The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Lord, the Father, and resting upon him, the, the Son, the righteous King. And there you have it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right here in Isaiah don't let anyone try to tell you that the Trinity is a, an invention of theologians and scholars in early church history as they set to try to prove that Jesus was divine. The triune Godhead has always existed. He's maybe been concealed in the Old Testament, but he's fully revealed in the New. So let's look at some other characteristics of this king. The second half of verse 3 through verse 5, in those verses, Isaiah tells us that this king shall judge justly. Look at these verses again. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be his, the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. There are two major characteristics of the returning king that Isaiah turns our attention to, and these characteristics are like two sides of the same coin. He's a king who grants mercy, and he's also a king who executes justice. When will he show mercy? When will he execute justice? If eternity is perfect, there won't be any need for justice or or mercy to be shown, right? Uh, Since the, the carrying out of justice and the showing of mercy implies imperfection, we know that this doling out of justice and mercy cannot take place in eternity. And we're told in Scripture that the last time that the king will have to uh, have justice done and mercy shown is at the final judgment before his children are ushered into eternity. There he will show mercy to those who have believed on him and who have become his children by grace through faith. And there, again, at the great white throne judgment, he will dole out judgment, executing justice to those who have not believed in him and have not called on his name, those who have rejected him. That's when the king will be able to show his mercy and his judgment. But what about verse 4? Look at this. This is interesting too. With righteousness, Isaiah says, he shall judge the poor. Does verse 4 mean that there will be no poverty in eternity? (laughs) Are there going to be different social classes like we have Here on earth, in the new heavens and new earth, if you're poor now, will you be poor in eternity? Or will it be flipped? Will the rich here on this life become poor in the next life? I I don't think that's what Isaiah is getting at at all. Uh, Remember, these verses are describing the characteristics of the king. They don't necessarily focus on his kingdom. We get glimpses of that a little bit later. The main focus in these verses is on what the king is like, who he is. Right? And the characteristics of mercy and justice, righteousness, faithfulness, like we read about in verse 5, all of those are inseparably woven together into the very fabric of this king and his being. His righteousness isn't shown more favor- favorably to one group over another. He is righteous and he is just to all. So let's talk a little bit about the king's kingdom. That's highlighted in verses 6 through 9. When the king returns and sets up his kingdom, his kingdom will be a kingdom that's established in perfect peace. In perfect peace. I won't take time to reread these verses again, but these verses focus on the peace that will exist within all relationships. It's a total peace that's characterized by by wolves dwelling with lambs, by, by leopards and goats laying down together in the same patches of grass, by lions and, and calves and even fattened ones, the, the good, juicy, fattened calves hanging out together. You never see that in nature, do you, right? You, you would never see that in the wild. <laughs> You've watched the nature sh- shows too, right? You know how vicious those lions can be when they see that antelope. Boom, they're there right away. But this peace in all relationships is also described too. Did you notice using uh, everybody's favorite reptile as an example? Snakes, right? <laughs> and we're not just talking about your, your, your garden variety garter snake here. We're talking creepy, slimy, scaly, poisonous snakes. 
young kids, nursing infants, children who have just been weaned, are playing with adders and cobras without fear, right? <laughs> On this side of eternity, I would never let my kids play with a coral snake, or your kids for that matter too, right? <laughs> but, but in eternity, there will be peace within all relationships, And this total peace will only be possible because in eternity there will be an undoing, a complete undoing of the curse of sin. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, humans weren't the only ones affected adversely. Sin and death spread to all aspects, to all facets of life. Humanity's sin wrecked all of God's perfect creation. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says that just as we await the return of the king, all creation is longing, eagerly waiting for his return as well. Sin's curses have subjected creation to futility and to corruption. And when Christ returns and ushers in eternity, when he creates the new heaven and the new earth, the curses of sin will be undone. So completely undone that even nature itself will be restored to its perfect state. And really what it all amounts to is that this will be a restoration of Eden, right? A return to the perfect state uh, that existed in the Garden of Eden when God had created everything and created it good. And we get some of that picture when we read the final chapters of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, we get a glimpse of the restoration of all of creation. And these verses, by the way, happen to be the theme for our fly convention this summer. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Let me read these here. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, John says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from every eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. It will be glorious, won't it? Those are some wonderful promises that we can cling to. Some of the saddest things in life, death, mourning, pain, will not be in eternity. Earlier this morning, Brian, you read from Revelation chapter 22, right? We read of that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, in whom the light of God's glory overshadows everything. 
And because of the presence of the king, because of the Lord God Almighty being there, his kingdom will be a kingdom that's established in perfect peace. And we long for that day, do we not? And notice finally that the return, this returning king that Isaiah speaks of will be a king for all peoples. It's been a while, so let me reread verse 10 here for you. It says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This king, this root of Jesse, will not just be a king for national Israel. He would be a signal, a banner, a flag, if you will, that all people would rally around. The nations, Isaiah says, the nations, the heathen nations who are far from the Lord would come to him in worship and in awe and in reverence. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses this passage and this verse to say that Gentiles will come to Christ, to the Messiah. In Romans 15, Paul is making his case that Jesus came not just for the Jewish race to be their Savior, but that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the hope of both Jews and Gentiles. And that's good for uh, most of us sitting here today, right? This this morning, not many of us are Jewish by birth, by by nature, by identity, right? We're, We're Scandinavian by ancestry, and we would have been excluded from Christianity if Christ had come solely as a king for Israel. But by God's grace, he loves us all, and he sent his son, Jesus, to die for all allowing both Jew and non-Jew to become a part of his kingdom. And at the return of the king, we'll all witness and participate in a glorious scene of worship. Paul mentions it in Philippians 2.10. He says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a uh, great scene towards the end of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Return of the King, which depicts this truth. And by the way, if you were wondering, yes, I unashamedly stole that book title for my sermon title this morning. But, you know, Tolkien being a Christian and all, writing The Lord of the Rings as a Christian myth, expounding upon Christian themes um, like the one ring as sin and Frodo being the the Christ figure as he bears that sin, Boromir being the one man on the fellowship of the rings failing miserably like all of humanity has failed, Uh, things like that. Many of these ideas have a a Christian root and uh, so all of that to say, yeah, (laughs) Um, even uh, towards the end of that that book series, right, Aragorn after his uh, journey to the dead Uh, which is actually, by the way, too, a picture of Christ returning from the dead, right? And as Aragorn releases the dead men who go uh, after they have fulfilled their their mission, uh, Aragorn releases them from the dead and from their curse of death, just like Christ released us from our curse. Uh, (laughs) Kind of some fun stuff anyway, some parallels and analogies in there. But all all that to say, there's a fun scene in the book, and they included it in the movies too, of Aragorn, King Aragorn's coronation service as, as he becomes king. And as soon as Aragorn is crowned king, the entire assembly gathered together there at Minas Tirith, from the greatest of them even to the least, bows down on one knee to pay homage to the king who has returned and claimed his throne in Gondor. And someday, every knee on earth 
will bow and pay homage to the true king who has come into his kingdom. He will rule that kingdom in in the spirit and in the fear of the Lord. That king will rule the kingdom justly and in righteousness and faithfulness. He will establish peace, fully conquering sin and death and the devil, and will restore paradise to his children. And to that we say, Amen. Maranatha, come Lord. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, again, we do thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending your son Christ who came 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, dying on a cross in our place and on our behalf, bearing our sin. And Father, we thank you that one day he is coming back again, and we pray that it would be soon. You know the things that we're going through, pandemics and political things and just life in general is difficult and hard and we pray, Father, that you would send your son soon to redeem us, to take us into eternity, to usher in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.